This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 23rd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. One of the elements of the emerging national conservatism is industrial policy, the idea that government should play a larger role in directing business activity. But the case for industrial policy put forth by Orrin Cass leaves a lot to be desired. So says Cato's Ryan Bourne. We spoke last week. Oren Cass uh, of the Manhattan Institute has made an argument sort of defending some kind of industrial policy. And Ryan, you'll get to uh, what that actually looks like. But this is part of a broader uh, movement within and among some uh, conservatives to uh, refocus the economic engine of the United States, among other things, uh, to focus more on workers. So what specifically has Oren Cass proposed and, and why I guess, why is this uh, something that would be expected or unexpected for conservatives to explicitly endorse? Well, Oren Cash made this speech at the National Conservatism Conference last month, and um, what he was explicitly advocating was a manufacturing-focused industrial policy that the government would undertake. And I think the reason why this is surprising from a conservative is that at least for the past 30 years or so, conservatives have broadly agreed with libertarians that free markets by and large tend to produce the most efficient allocation of resources across sectors. And in this speech, Cass was really repudiating that view. He was saying that market economies don't um, allocate resources well, that vital sectors suffer from underinvestment. And in effect, um, the market allocation of resources ignored um, lots of social and economic benefits that come from having a large manufacturing sector. So he explicitly outlined what he considers three big benefits um, from having a big manufacturing um, sector. Um, he said that, first of all, manufacturing provides well-paying, stable employment for people with less formal education. Um, he said that manufacturing tends to deliver faster productivity growth, which um, raises living standards. So, you know, it was preferable for us to have a larger share of um, economic output in the manufacturing sector. And he said that having a big manufacturing sector um, led to an economy more conducive to innovation. Now, put those three things together, and essentially he recommends nine very um, kind of broad but specific policy proposals that range from everything from you know the relatively benign government should invest some money in research and development in science right through to quite intrusive ideas in terms of foreign ownership of or restricting foreign ownership of manufacturing companies and bias in the tax code towards um towards manufacturing so what i've tried to do in an essay that i've published uh, just recently is um, look at do these economic supposed economic uh, benefits of having a big manufacturing sector um, stand up? Um, sadly, Oren Cass doesn't really go into much detail as to empirically how we could judge whether there's underinvestment in manufacturing at the moment, why it would be preferable to have a bigger manufacturing sector. He doesn't give us any metrics by which to assess that. So we have to assess his arguments on um economic grounds 
you know, theoretical analytical grounds on whether manufacturing and, and, and bias in the economy towards a bigger manufacturing sector would lead to all these economic benefits. And I'm supremely doubtful that it would. If you look at the data, um, manufacturing uh, as a share of total U.S. employment, you point this out in the article that you wrote uh, at Cato, uh, has continued a decades-long slide. I mean, many decades-long slide. Uh, manufacturing output is uh, high and is near historic highs. Yeah, that's right. Um, and this is the big kind of contention I have with um, Oren Cass's whole view, really. I mean, he says that there could be these two very specific benefits to having a big manufacturing sector. First of all, as I said, that it would provide well-paying, stable employment. And secondly, that manufacturing enjoys high productivity growth. Now, he's right on the latter that historically the sector has generated high productivity growth. But that clearly, when you look at this evidence, is linked to the fact that employment has fallen in the sector. Broadly, the story that you see across all um, high-income countries. And now some more than others, clearly some have bigger manufacturing sectors, but the broad story of the last um, 50, 60 years is that in manufacturing, uh, you get innovations, the use of machines, um, automation, that lead to productivity improvements. Those productivity improvements mean that you're able to produce um, the goods and service, well, the goods um, with fewer workers than you were able to before. Um, that, in essence, drives down the price of the goods, which consumers then um, enjoy through, through um, higher post-consumption disposable income than they otherwise would have. But all the evidence appears to be that when that happens, consumers then spend that that money that they've saved through cheaper goods and services demanding more services. So over time, as the manufacturing sector becomes more productive, um, the relatively static output that we demand from manufacturing requires fewer and fewer uh, workers and employment to deliver it. And, um, and, and so as that productivity feeds through, as those improvements feed through the economy, um, the relative size of the service sector goes up. So I think there's this big... Um, big thing that Oren Cass ignores in presuming that manufacturing employment uh, could generate both stable employment and um, fast productivity growth in that, you know, the historic evidence of the last 50, 60 years is those two trends of rapid productivity growth and falling employment are linked. And you can really see this when you, when you look at some very specific sectors. So if you take the manufacturing sub-industry of production of computers and electronic products. Over the last 30 years, that sector has been incredibly productive. It's seen a, a thousand percent increase in output um, per hour worked in that period. But that's come at the, tire, the same time as the um, employment in that sector has fallen in absolute terms by almost 50%. So clearly that productivity meant has meant that even even though we're all demanding more in the in the way of computers and electronic products, there's been such an improvement in productivity in that sector that actually we need fewer and fewer people working within it. So this promise that manufacturing is both going to deliver tons of employment for low-skilled employees 
and can be highly productive at the same time. I just don't think is borne out by the historic evidence and it's not borne out by the evidence that we see across all high income countries where as countries get richer, um, the share of employment in services tends to rise. Is there anything that we ought to take away from the experience of uh, Germany? It, it seems that, uh, you know, if if my understanding is correct, that there is a much stronger focus on uh, the benefits uh, to workers specifically with respect to their policies related to manufacturing. Well, that's right. But it's difficult to know the extent to which um, Germany has a large manufacturing sector because of policy which is which biases in that direction, as opposed to Germany trading on its kind of natural comparative advantages. So, um, look, if we believe, Orenkast clearly believes that having a more German-like policy framework will deliver us uh, better employment prospects for workers, um, higher productivity growth. Now, if we believe that were true, one of the things that we might expect to see is Germany have a much higher standard of living than uh, than the United States or be much more innovative, which is, which is a contention of Cass's. So in this essay, I look at various global innovation indices and um, they all produce very different results, but it's not clear that the US is consistently worse than Germany or, or Japan, who he also cites as an example on those measures. And in the face of that kind of those kind of subjective judgments, one thing that we might judge overall is um, economy-wide productivity as a kind of proxy for innovations in the past or innovations to the present. And if you look at GDP per hour worked in the US, it's currently around the same in in Germany and the and and the United States, and in both of those countries, much higher than in Japan. If you look at the the last ten years, productivity growth has actually been much faster here in America than either Germany or Japan. So again, it's not it's not clear why these countries are countries that we we might want to emulate. Um, from a from an economic perspective, but more than that, you know, we do have examples of other countries that have explicitly attempted industrial strategy. Um, the UK, where I'm from, attempted a lot of that through the the 1970s and 1980s, and uh, economists that have tried to assess whether that was successful have, have tended to find that most of the measures attempted would pretty disastrous from an economic perspective. And crucially, what they found was uh, the, the stuff that did fundamentally make manufacturing in the UK more productive was stuff like being open to trade, uh, was allowing foreign direct investment that brought with it uh, best practice from other countries. And these are precisely the things that Oren Kass believes it's important to restrict in order to generate a larger manufacturing sector in the US. So I just don't see the the kind of slam dunk evidence out there that if we were to adopt the policy platform Cass proposes, we would have a much stronger, richer, more innovative economy. Ryan Bourne occupies the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 